All right, Dave, here we are. Um, listeners may have noticed that I was, if not asleep at the wheel over the past 15 episodes or so, uh, I was mainly letting you carry these, Dave, because European history is, is uh, I don't know, it's it's just, uh, we when we set out to do this podcast, I always figured you would have that covered. So I never, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, it's impossible to avoid it. But I well, plus you had a baby that might have something to do with it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's small. That's oh small. yeah, that detail. Literally small. <laughs> um. So, uh. But now that we are in World War One, we're deep in World War One, and we have a situation where our plan for this podcast is to do a special series called Interwar, where we talk about all. The things that happened between World War One and Two, and a lot of the Indian independence movement and Chinese communists, and so many of these big events started in the interwar period. But this, the what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of the interwar period uh, that started during the war. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the Middle East, when it comes to the Arab world, that is the chronology. The in the dividing up of the spoils, the debates over the future, uh, post-war settlement, they all started during the war. And so today we're talking about the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916. And what it amounts to, to spoil it for in advance, is an agreement <laughs> that France and Britain came to to partition the Arab world, the Levant, the greater Syria. So if you think of the Arab world as the Arabian Peninsula, North Africa, and then Egypt, Iraq, and then there's this period, there's this part in the middle with Syria, Palestine, Lebanon. And that part in the middle is sometimes referred to as the Levant. And that part is what was partitioned in Sykes-Picot. There was an area of French control, British control, French influence, British influence. And that agreement became very embarrassing for various reasons, as we will get into. <laughs> but um, that's the that's the story of today, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And I'm going to talk about it through a book, using a book by Birdie, Michael Burdeen, a 2018 book called Redrawing the Middle East, Sir Mark Sykes, Imperialism and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So it's basically a biography of Mark Sykes, Sir Mark Sykes. I'm sorry, I didn't want to insult an actual oh. knight. Oh, oh, yeah, you do. By not, uh, not using your <laughs> title. <laughs> He's a knight, for God's sake. Uh, so Burdeen uh, himself, born in 1945, he has a PhD in British imperial history. And he has a book about Wilfred Scawen Blunt. So he's a his two books are both biographies of British imperialists. And for people who, if you go back and listen to our episodes in the Scramble for Africa about Egypt, Wilfred Scawen Blunt comes in for what I would call a very honorable mention from the point of view of a British imperialist. He's a very anti-imperialist guy who happens to be in Egypt when... Egypt is being taken over by the British. And he gave all kinds of warnings that it was not going to be good. (laughs) The Egyptians didn't want it and Mm -hmm. so on. And, uh, of course, they didn't listen to him. Um, I.B. Taurus, the publisher, they publish a lot of stuff about the Middle East. And Burdeen is very much a, you know, he takes the British view on things. uh, But he's very deep in the primary sources, lots of direct quotes from Sykes's letters at the time and people's letters to Sykes, people writing about Sykes. He's deep into the records. Um, And he starts, chapter one has an epigraph, which is uh, Churchill's description of Sykes. And Churchill says the following about Sykes. He said, he was clearly marked out for service in the East. He became an invaluable factor in all that intricate and remarkable policy, which split Mm -hmm. the Arab from the Turk, divided the Muslim world at a most critical juncture and eventually furnished important forces on the desert flank of Allenby's armies. Allenby, we will get into. You know what the bridge is between Jordan and uh, the West Bank of Palestine is called, Dave? 
the Allenby Bridge. How'd you know? How did you know? Lucky guess. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what it's called. Um, okay, so this, our story begins in 1911 when the new member of parliament for Central Hull, Mark Sykes, makes at the tender age of 30, I don't know, 35, makes his maiden speech in the House. And everyone admires the speech because he touches on every national danger from Tunis to Travancore. Uh, he refers to the Indian Mutiny and the Crimean War, both of which are linked in his mind to by Britain's failures in the Islamic world. And his general position is, if war came in the West, the British must send troops to the East. Um, he The speech wins him inv invitations to all the important conservative clubs. Did you know about these clubs, Dave? There's a Carlton Club, the 1900 yes. Club, the Beef Steak Club. That and one's the new Pence to me. Club. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the end of 1911, he had attended 27 social events, spent 50 days in Westminster, taken part in 88 divisions, asked 16 questions, and made one speech. So a real hard worker, our Sykes. In 1913, Sykes's father dies, so he becomes the sixth baronet of Sledmere, and he manages a 30,000-acre estate. What? How big was the estate in that show that you told me to watch that I couldn't stand? <laughs> I don't know. Downton, Downton. Did I tell you to watch that? Uh, oh, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just for the class uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, probably probably comparable in size to Sykes' estate. Uh, Sykes travels to the Ottoman Empire in 1913. It's a place of fond memories of travels with his father. He, his, his, Goal on this trip is to assess the effect of the Balkan Wars on Turkey. Um, he says, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire in Asia must bring the powers of Europe directly confronting one another in a country where there are no frontiers because the mountains are parallel to the littoral, littoral being the coast, uh, the ocean, you know, the mm -hmm. coast, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, and because there being only three rivers, one moving in a circle and the others running side by side over a level plain, it is very difficult for any power to find a frontier. So, uh, geographic determinism, I guess, the idea that the the layout of this part of the world makes it very difficult to draw a border. There are no natural borders between countries that are defensible. So Didn't he writes, stop them in Africa. No, I mean, yeah. So that's why it's that's why geeking out. I, I think I've said this before. Geeking out on geopolitics or on map. Maps, you can get a little too deep and lose sight of the fact that that's not more than a part of the story. That, I mean, I, I think that people important. live there. You mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, uh, so he writes his third book. He's already written three books. He really is an energetic guy. He's written his third book on the Ottoman Empire. The the, Cali the Caliph's Last Heritage, which comes to be published in 1915. And in the book, he writes um, his opinions of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman military. He basically says it's uh, decadent and useless. And the author, Burdine, of this biography, he, he says that Sykes's analysis, shared by others, plays a role in their British disasters, which we've covered uh, mm -hmm. against the Ottoman Empire because they underestimate them radically in World War One. He calls the, the rank and file soldiers hysterical, pedantic, idle and vicious. And he says, what could be expected from the leadership of such creatures? What influence could they expect to have on the men they are supposed to prepare for battle? Um, and. Berdine says his harsh assessment of the modern, oh yeah, the, the modern Turkish military, he says they're a mere horde of helpless, leaderless villagers, misunderstood and misunderstanding, with no more enthusiasm or hope than a chain gang. So if that's what your Middle East guy is saying about the military, you're probably going to, you're going to be pretty optimistic about fighting them. Uh, Burdine says Sykes's vivid imagination was in harmony with British assumptions, a fact that would prove costly in the early years of the war, particularly in the Dardanelles and at Kut al-Amara, mm -hmm. both of which we have covered in our episode on Allied disasters. So his 1914 speeches in Parliament, they're all about stopping Germany from getting control of Turkey. And he's really worried that Nobody seems to understand the importance of preventing Germany from getting control of the Ottoman Empire. 
he he also gives us a scale of World War One again. World War One, Berdine reminds us, mobilized 65 million troops, had 20 million military and civilian deaths, and 21 million wounded. And he also says it claimed three empires, Austria-Hungary, Ottoman, and Russian. <clears throat> I think he meant German, too. Oh, right. I suppose that's true. <laughs> How is that uh, three? I guess Berdine was off by one. That's, yeah. It's still a pretty good, pretty good record. He, he got three out of four. Sykes was a Boer War veteran. Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel in the 5th Yorkshire Green Howards Regiment. Mm. And as the war starts, he goes to France and sees the front lines. He's devastated by, you, you've, you've mentioned this in a previous episode, the medical facilities issue. So he does some private fundraising along with his lady, Sykes. Uh, lady Sykes goes over to France and sets up a field hospital over there. Uh, they pay for it out of the proceeds of their 30,000 acre estate, I suppose. Um, he sends Churchill a handwritten note uh, offering him and his battalion and their services uh, against the Turks. He says, I know you won't think me self-serving if I say all the knowledge I have of local tendencies and possibilities are at your disposal. If operations are to take place in those parts, I might be of some use on the spot than anywhere else. My battalion is practically willing for foreign service. 85% of its possible antagonists in the regions I mentioned, I could make it serve a turn, raise native scallywag corps, win over notables or any other augment. Um, comment on... <laughs> Scallywags. <laughs> oh my god. What's a, I, I I thought scallywags were specifically Indians, but I guess No, that's no. a generic generic term. I'll look it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> Churchill says, Many my many thanks, but I hope we shall avoid a rupture with Turkey though. So before the rupture with Turkey, Churchill was pretty optimistic about. Mm. When it came time for his troops to deploy to France, though Sykes got a throat infection, severe throat infection. So his men were sent without him. They were led by his next in line, uh, Major Mortimer, instead. He writes to Churchill again in January of 1915, and he says, we're playing it too safe uh, in this war. Uh, Sachs, Frederick the Great, Napoleon, none of them would have done this. They would have taken risks. And his risk, the risk that he su su suggests, is to take Constantinople. He says the whole fabric of Turkey would come rumbling to the ground. The terrorist committee, the army headquarters, the gold, the ideal, all would be gone. And the thorn in Russia's side would be extracted. The menace to Egypt dispelled. The pan-Islamic danger, which is ever present, no matter what we may pretend, would be gone forever. By June, you could be fighting towards <laughs> Vienna. You would have got your knife somewhere near the monster's vitals and perhaps might achieve the line in Mulhausen, which is in Alsace, Munich, in Bavaria, Vienna, in Austria, Krakow, Poland, before next winter. He says, uh, he's, he tells Churchill, look, I know you're you're worried about shortages, but he says, listen, in Constantinople, you will find immense stores of war material, guns, cartridges, rifles, and a well-equipped arsenal, besides large quantities of gold in private hands. So he will steal their coal. Loot, loot Constantinople completely. <laughs> as far as men, he figures you could assemble a force of British, Russian, and Indian elements of, say, 100,000 Indians, 50,000 British, and 600,000 Russians, <laughs> bringing with the Serbians the force on the southeastern front to a million men. So he wants to take Constantinople for England with a million men, 50,000 of whom are British. That's pretty standard. <laughs> I looked up Scallywag. It is it is what I thought it was. It's a it's a rascal, right? Okay. Bad behavior but kind of endearing in ah. a mischievous way. However, one reference I did not know it's a, in the U.S. It was a reference to a white Southerner who collaborated with Repub Northern Republicans during Reconstruction. Oh, so I thought they called those carpetbag. No, the people those, who came were carpetbaggers. Right. I see. So carpetbaggers and then sc scallywags. Carpetbaggers and the scallywags who love them. Something like this. Or who profit alongside them? Yeah. So he says Russia gives them the numbers, uh, but you can't use numbers if you sink into trenches in the fatal scheme of attrition so deadly to the interests of civilizations and the future vitality of this country. So he wants mobile, fast-moving, surprising, bold moves like Napoleon or Frederick the Great. So Churchill didn't reply to this particular memo. 
<laughs> you know, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds of people writing with their helpful advice. You know, Sykes, <laughs> Sykes is hardly alone. Everybody's got a plan and they're willing to share it with the government. So <laughs> you you file these things under forget <laughs> until yeah, until you decide to do something. Oh, I remember a letter from a certain guy. <laughs> yeah. let, let me go find that. So so somebody sent them letters about D- the Dardanelle and Kut al-Amara, and they did those. Yep. And in the planning phases of that, Sykes sent Churchill some unsolicited advice, which is, again, it sounds... Th- this is the thing about this guy. Um, it all sounds really smart. And when you read it the second time, you realize he's saying almost nothing. He says to Churchill, Turks always grow formidable if given time to think. They may be lulled into passivity and rushed owing to their natural idleness and proneness to panic, but they are dangerous if gradually put on their guard. <laughs> so, like, you, you know what? That sounds like the British description of the French. Of anybody, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's just it's like uh, we're, we're, what he's saying is we should move faster than the other side. Okay. Yeah. Uh, whoever says <clears throat> you shouldn't move faster than the other side. So he becomes Kitchener's man. We've heard a lot about Kitchener in the past couple of episodes. And Kitchener's not Kitchener's on a similar page as uh, Sykes. He sends a memo to the War Council in March 1915, and he says, Should the partition of Turkey take place, it is to our interest to see an Arab kingdom established in Arabia under the auspices of England. Bounded in the north by the valley of the Tigris and the Euphrates, which is in Iraq right now, and containing within it the chief Mahomedan holy places Mecca, Medina, and Karbala. So Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia, and Karbala is in Iraq. Asquith and Gray uh, have already agreed to Sazanov's request that Constantinople goes to Russia and Syria goes to France. So this is now going to create some... Debate within the ranks of the British War Council about what to give to who, what Arab countries to give to who at the end of the war. The Admiralty wants a base in a place called Alexandretta. If you want to look that up on a map, it's now called Iskandarun and it's Mm -hmm. in Turkey. Um, The India office wants the port to be in Haifa, which, uh, as you know, is in present day Palestine. So they try to hash that out on a committee called the Debunson Committee. And Kitchener's representative on the Debunson Committee is Sykes. He's the youngest member at 36. Oh, so in 1911, he must have been around 31. And Caldwell, you may remember Caldwell. He's the author of that book, Small Wars. Uh, And Sykes is the most energetic, and he gives the most detailed lectures with the most detailed maps and memos. So he impresses everyone with how much he knows. And how hard he works. Uh, and his goal is he wants a bu- he wants there to be a buffer between the British and French in the Arab lands. And he knows that the French have a lot of leverage over Syria at the moment because they are the financers. So Syria's <laughs> the Pasha of Syria, uh, who is in kind of a semi-independent status from the Ottomans, like lots of other Arab countries at this by this point. The Pasha is deep in debt with the French. So the French have massive leverage over Syria, and and Sykes knows this. So these are the considerations that Sykes has. He he has to please, he has to try to navigate the promises that they've made to Russia. He has to navigate the fact that France has the most, second most colonial designs on these lands after Britain, and that they're allies right now. So these are what he's navig what he's moving towards, and so there are there are several ways to address this, and one of them is devolution. So Sykes, in May 1915, he proposes the devolution of the Ottoman Empire into five historical and ethnological provinces: Anatolia, Armenia, Syria, Palestine, and Iraq slash Jazeera. If they were partitioned, he figures, divided then Britain's advisors could be in all five of these countries and have huge influence in all five. So that's always a good one. 
But other options include annexation, spheres of influence, just taking, maintaining the Ottoman Empire in its form and subjugating the whole empire under British control, which I guess is what they've been doing for the past 30, 40 years, right? Mm. Um, not trying to break it up, but trying to keep it on life support under British. Yeah, protection. but ta- taking over like they did in Egypt. Yes, yes, that was yeah. Once they once we hit scramble for Africa time, they start taking chunks off of. Yeah, it. so the Ottoman Sultan can stay in power, but but we'll run the finances and we'll tell them what to do. So a lot of the elite do want to preserve Turkey, and they're worried about France and Russia and their designs. Uh, the partition idea includes a rail link from Haifa to Iraq, and that oh, they're constantly talking about that railway. And the issue with that is also that because there's the Berlin to Baghdad railway, are we helping Germans connect up their own network, and is that going to cause us problems? So Debunson finally publishes, the Debunson Committee publishes their report in June on June 30th, 1915. And Sykes, meanwhile, goes on a fact-finding tour to the Middle East. Uh, he goes to Athens, Gallipoli, Crete, Sofia, Cairo, Aden, Karachi, Shimla, and Basra. So he's all over. He goes to India, he goes to Iraq, he goes to Egypt. Mostly he's based in Egypt for this trip. When he when he goes to Crete, he meets Sir Valentine Cairol. Have you heard of this guy? No. He's a former journalist for The Times. He was the foreign affairs advisor uh, and diplomat. So he's one of these East hands, and he has his own ideas. So he, him and Sykes have a little bit of a clash. He tells uh, Sykes that the Sultan should not remain the Caliph. And he thinks that there's this very menacing pan-Islamic propaganda. He says, I doubt whether the menacing character of that propaganda has yet been sufficiently appreciated. I think there are still people in England saying that about pan-Islamic propaganda. Uh, There are some uh, people in Syria that are Syrian Arabs, uh, and they talk to him, the intellectual class, and they tell him they're really worried about France. So they like France culturally, but they know that the way the French operate, the way the French operate in Algeria, the way the French operate with their financial leverage, they don't, uh, and um, missionaries, all that kind of stuff, they don't like any of that. So they're kind of worried about France. When Sykes goes to Yemen, he gets the impression and he writes back that he figures that Iraq will declare independence if Constantinople, Constantinople falls. He says, the Arabs should be able to rule Iraq without European assistance, particularly in the domain of finance, which is something he's not saying that is a good thing, by the way. Um, he says, but the idea that the whole Arab world could be one country, he says the pan-Arabism is incoherent in plan and undecided in policy. Uh, the resident in Aden, which is in Yemen, Lieutenant Colonel Jacoby, he says transferring the caliphate to an Arab would be a mistake because it might end in a religious revival with some new leader who would imbue it with a wa- renewed vitality. A moribund caliphate in an atrophied Turkey would have fewer potentialities of danger than a caliphate situated in Arabia where the vital spark of Islam survives. So the Egyptian Arab elites, they float the idea of, hey, what if we, what if England were to give us our independence gradually? So Sykes, that freaks Sykes out privately. (laughs) And he writes back and says, this is one of the people he meets is the publisher of Al-Manar, Arab intellectual named Rashid Rida. And Rashid Rida, in his meeting with Sykes, tells him Egypt will never be reconciled to British tutelage. So Sykes is writing about Rita, and he says he has this mental arrogance that comes from the idea that Britain is afraid of Islam. He's up, Sykes is upset because he says the Muslim world, he doesn't seem to, Rita doesn't understand how great the, the Muslim world should be grateful to Britain. And Rita also warns Sykes that Germany is an option for them. So he says, Rita refuses to entertain any idea of control or advisors with executive authority of any kind. Can you believe this, Dave? He thinks Rita thinks Arabs could easily manage their own affairs, and no argument would move him on this point. 
So Sykes comes to the conclusion, it will be seen that it is quite impossible to come to any understanding with people who hold such views, and it may be suggested that against such a party, force is the only argument that they can understand. So when he's very alarmed by this conversation that he has with Rita, and it makes him think we desperately need to come to some deal with France. Because if France and us can't get our act together, then these independence Arabs will take advantage. Um, then he <laughs> then he pens a, a long analysis of the Islamic world, and it's it's kind of presented in a lot of detail by the biographer Burdine. And the way that he writes about the Muslims and the Arabs, it kind of reminds me of uh, of concerning hobbits you know the beginning of lord of the rings you know oh. above all above all hobbits love things that are green and grow or whatever you mean the, the language yeah just the way that he kind of tells you about these people in these very generalized terms about the characteristics of these people um so he divides the sunnis into three classes okay there's ancients and moderns and ancient class one is uh, the mind is characterized as follows. He says, this type of mind is soaked in Islamic learning and prejudice. It is hard, unyielding, bigoted, and fanatical, desires no change, and is wedded to a close observance of formulae and nice distinctions of cleanliness of person and propriety of conduct. The advance of Europe has embittered these thinkers against Christians till they are even more violent and sour in their sentiments against Christendom than their forebears. Okay, so. I see what you mean about the language. <laughs> you know what, though, that description, uh, hard, unyielding, bigoted and fanatical, desires no change, wedded to a close observance of formula and nice distinctions of cleanliness of person and propriety of conduct. He could be describing the Conservative Party in Britain. <laughs> and you know what, there's there's one word in there that stands out to me. You're right. Uh, nice distinctions. I think you have to be either uh, British or of a certain age to realize that when you use nice that way, you mean exactly the opposite. Hmm. There's, uh, speaking of hobbits, uh, there's a scene in uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, on Weathertop where the, the hobbits are cooking and Frodo stamps out their fire. Yeah. And one of them says, oh, that's nice. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what he means, of yeah. course, is that's not nice. Right. So when you make nice distinctions, mm -hmm. uh, what we really mean is that you are either splitting hairs or that you are uh, being disingenuous. Right. You're right. I, I, I read it as kind of overly fine distinctions. Yes. yes. But, um, but yeah, maybe it's just more of a sarcastic usage no it's so exactly that, that overly fine but <clears throat> you're doing it to you know conceal your real motives or something yes. like that so that's ancient class one then there's modern class two so ancient class one are bad arabs of course uh now we have some good arabs coming so modern class two this is the type of mind which is generous kindly tolerant and hopeful with a strict sense of duty which is tempered by a profound sense of justice and devotion and religion which is divorced from political ambition well that's a particularly good type of arab isn't it with no political ambitions um now so, that i think so rita if he did what i told him to yeah. <laughs> no, Rita's clearly a class three. You're going to hear about him. Right. This is like Goldilocks, actually, more like more than concerning hobbits. There's the oats are too hot. The hoats are too cold. And um, modern class two is just right. So modern class three. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. Modern class three. Uh, there's another maybe later he makes a different classification so modern class three are like mystics sufis the body of educated muslims who while devoted to the culture and habits of the past are moving along the path of unorthodox mysticism which knows no immutable formula nor restriction in thought so he's i think that he talks later about a class of intellectuals that are motivated by envy of the british and they're the most dangerous kinds of people uh, i think it's a different class he, he he comes up with a different scheme we'll get there so he goes on to india he does not like india 
Mark Sykes does not is not a fan of India. He doesn't like the British in India. He doesn't like the Indians in India. He doesn't like the Muslims in India, and he doesn't like the Hindus in India. So the British, the Viceroy of India, Harding, he also doesn't like Sykes. Um, and the British in India in general don't like him. So they they don't like each other. Valentine Cairol writes ahead. <laughs> so he, 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 meets, he meets him in Crete and he writes a letter to the Viceroy of India. And he says, listen, the guy, Sykes is coming. He has great ability and knowledge of the East, but he's wayward and eccentric and rather lacks ballast and knowledge. <laughs> so the Viceroy. Wait, wait, he, wait, wait. He has great yeah. ability and knowledge, but lacks knowledge. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> look, coherence is not precisely. Yeah. No, I get it. He knows a lot of stuff, just the wrong stuff. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Uh, the Viceroy writes ahead, not to Sykes. I guess there's a lot of politeness going on. So instead of writing to Sykes, the Viceroy writes to Caldwell, our small wars guy, and says, um, listen, I'm not I'm not going to be taking. I don't know why you're sending this guy, but I'm not going to be taking orders from this guy. <laughs> And and Caldwell says, no, no, relax. Uh, we're just sending Sykes to to report back to us on what's going on in in Muslim, in the Muslim British Empire. And Viceroy Harding, he doesn't want England to support the Sharif of Mecca against the Turkish Sultan. Uh, Viceroy Harding says the Sharif would be regarded as a rebel both in India and Afghanistan, and that the risk of attaching blame to Britain for embroiling the Muslim holy places or the Hijaz in the war. Uh, so this is a disagreement between the Indian Viceroy and Kitchener about what to do here. Right. I think Vice, the Viceroy in India, they've already got what they have, right? So they're no, a little bit they've more got conservative. A they've got a different plan for uh, Arabia. Yeah. There, there yeah. are more, more than one cook in the kitchen at this point. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that a little later. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is I think the Indian – the British imperialists in India are trying to hold on to what they have, and the British adventurers, the the British in in Egypt and and back in England are a little more adventurous because they're trying to get more. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. the yeah the uh, the Anglo Indian establishment are saying, don't stir up the Muslims. Yeah, yeah. This is our this is our precious, this is our most prized possession, and you're gonna whip things up trying to get more, and we're gonna lose what we already do have. Sykes doesn't like the Hindu religion. Uh, the shrines give him the horrors. They're so red and greasy and mysterious. <laughs> he, he, he writes his wife and he says, everyone here, meaning the English people that he's meeting in India, feared upsetting religious susceptibilities, a phrase which is beginning to get on my nerves. So he's tired of all these people with their sensitivities to local religions. He He's disgusted with the way that English people behave. He says, the Anglo-Indian of low degree is accustomed to travel with loads of servants, bedding, etc., and expects all men to don evening dress on all occasions. <laughs> so um, I'm sure Sykes is right about them and that they're right about Sykes. He contrasts Indian Muslim clerics with their Turkish counterparts. This is very interesting. He basically thinks that Indian Muslims are ignorant about Islam. He says, the Turkish ulema are a learned and cultivated body of well-trained clergy with considerable prestige, whereas the Indian old school Muslims are disorganized, atrophied and feeble so far as learning is concerned. Ah, yes, this is this is the new categorization that I was thinking of, Dave, when I was talking to you about the modern yeah, class yeah. one, two and three. So there's two new categories. He calls them intellectuals and the old school. So the old school are these feeble people and the intellectuals are motivated by envy. He says, with an imitation European training, with envy of the European surging in his heart who is an agnostic and has no belief whatever in religion, but sees in Islam a political engine whereby immense masses of men can be moved to riot and disorder is far more dangerous. So he's they're afraid of native intellectuals, and I guess they should be because it's these yeah. people that are eventually <laughs> going to take their entire empire away from them. But uh, that's uh, that's still, what, 40, 40 years away? 30, 40 yeah. years away? Yeah. <clears throat> So he writes a memo arguing that Iraq should not be ruled from India. <clears throat> so he's got this problem. He, India, like you said, India wants, India has ideas about what should happen in Arabia, and he does not want 
Arabia to be ruled under Indian auspices. He says to do that, he says to impose artificially an alien and lower grade of civilization upon a people who have a natural tendency to a higher and more progressive social state. So he basically says Arabs are racially superior to Indians. And so you don't want you don't want in Arabs to be ruled from India. That would be perverse from a racial superiority standpoint. And he's worried about Indian seditionism. So he wants Iraq to be ruled from Egypt. He says, and he says there's a natural, um, there's a natural cleavage they can take advantage of because he thinks Indian Muslims and Arabs naturally don't like each other. He says Indian Muslims are politically and racially against the Arabs. The Arabs regard the Indians with contempt on account of their poverty, physique, and ignorance of religion. The Indians being pro-Turkish are anti-Arab. This is an immense benefit to us in the event of an Arab movement succeeding. So again, (laughs) it's one of these things where he's talking about He's talking about like these racial profundities that he's d- uncovered, but in fact, it's all he's talking about is his own prejudices, right? He's basically saying, I don't like India and I like Arabs. Oh, he loves uh, categories and generalizations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I love your little editorial note here. <laughs> <laughs> that was just for me. That, that wasn't for. <laughs> that's not for wider consumption. <laughs> oh. So. Sykes, um, he explains that Indian Muslims look to the Turkish caliph because they're either propagandized or they don't know their own religion. So he do, he really wants to make sure that they keep Indian Muslims out when they're occupying Iraq. He doesn't want Indian Muslim troops to be there if that can be avoided. Um, and it, the important thing that he's reacting to is that the Turkish supreme religious authority in the Ottoman Empire, which is supposed to be the leader of the whole uh, Islamic Ummah, they did declare a jihad against the Ottoman enemies of Britain, France, and Russia in 1914, but nothing much came out of it. They were, but the British were very scared. They were very freaked out over this. Um, And Sykes took it as, okay, we, we should try to, we should try to get the Arabs to fight the Turks. So he ultimately gets uh, his superiors to set up an Arab bureau in Cairo run by him uh, to give intelligence and advice to the war councils about all things Arab. And so he becomes the Arab guy. I mean, him and Lawrence, we're going to talk about it in Allenby, but he's he's one of the main players. Mm -hmm. Um, And Berdine says under the auspices of the Arab Bureau, Sykes and Lawrence and other people were able to wander freely around the Middle East with inexhaustible supplies of money. So the the mischief that these people are able to get up to is considerable. Yeah, and they were joined by the High Commissioner for Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon, and he's writing to uh, Sharif Hussein. Hussein is the uh, guardian of the holy places Mecca and Medina, he he's the he's the sheriff, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they're negotiating with him. Ten letters between July 1915 and March of 1916, uh, and basically McMahon is promising that the British government will recognize Arab independence after the war, yeah. in exchange for Sharif Hussein launching an Arab revolt against the Turks. So I was was mentioning cooks in the kitchen. So you've got Sykes and his maps, you know, dismembering the Ottoman Empire. You've got McMahon promising independence for the Arabs and Lawrence going out and encouraging those ideas of independence, as well as, you know, teaching the uh, Arabs to blow up railways and trains and you know, all that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, the Indian guys are not staying at home either. So there's an Arab bureau in Cairo, but there's a an Arab um, group coming out of India, and they're based in Kuwait, where they have been uh, bribing the emir of Kuwait for some time. Uh, Sir Percy Cox is the leading figure there. Uh, Harry St. John Philby, I'm sure they pronounce it Sinjin. So Harry <laughs> Sinjin Philby. Philby goes to uh, 
basically uh, Ibn Saud, the, the founder of Saudi Arabia, and offers him alliance and money and, and so on. Philby's oh, there. I had a feeling, Dave. I had a feeling. And when you said it, I had to look. Um, one of the famous, one of the most famous spies in history was someone named Kim Philby. Yep. Related? His son. Yeah. The son. <laughs> he's the son of, of John Harry Philby. St. John Philby. Uh, yeah, St. John Philby. Yeah, Harry St. John Bridger Philby, 1885 to 1960. Also known as Jack Philby or Sheikh Abdullah. Well, he converted to Islam. <laughs> like he no. went native in a big way. Um, and then there's another uh, guy operating out there, Major Frank Holmes, and he's trying to get the oil concession. Wait, wait, there's more. We have to. We, I, he was a friend and classmate of Jawaharlal Nehru. Philby? Yeah. Wow. He was born in Sri Lanka. Okay. Educated at Westminster Trinity College, Cambridge, studied Oriental languages, was a friend and classmate of Nehru. Sheikh Abdullah. <laughs> and then well, his son is Tim <clears throat> Philby. Yeah. So what, what I'm suggesting wow. here is that Philby could have been Lawrence of Arabia mm -hmm. if the British had decided to go with Ibn right. Saud rather than the Sheriff of Mecca. Right. So there are two, uh, basically there are two prongs of British interference in the Arab Peninsula. One is based in, in Cairo and the other is coming from India uh, based in Kuwait. And then you have this Major Frank Holmes who's trying to get the oil concession from the Emir of Kuwait, but also from Ibn Saud. And he's trying to get it for uh, the Gulf Oil uh, Corporation. But they're delaying and they're haggling over how much money, whereas I think the American venture put the cash up front. And so, so that, I mean, railroads, oil, you know, there's more than just Sykes reading maps going on. So when yeah. you have a, a, a situation where, you know, what, there, there's what the government in London is thinking, yeah. and then there's what the branch in Cairo is thinking, and then there's the guy who's actually there on the spot, the man on the spot, the Gallagher thesis, if you will. In this case, you have two men on the spot rather than one. And they are giving conflicting messages. So the big message from the McMahon-Hussein correspondence right. is that England acknowledges the independence. So there's a, there's a quote, you know, the initial thing that Hussein is asking for. He says, England to acknowledge the independence of the Arab countries bounded on the north by Mersina and Adana up to 37 degrees of latitude, uh, up to the border of Persia, on the east by the borders of Persia, up to the Gulf of Basra, on the south by the Indian Ocean, with the exception of the position of Aden to remain as it is, which obviously would have eventually become Arab as well on the west by the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, up to Mersina. So one big Arab country uh, <clears throat> with a little bit of concessions here and there to the current imperialist control. And McMahon more or less agrees. They, there's some haggling over this and that concession. But the, the idea is the Arabs revolt and then the British support them in creating a independent Arab state. This is the Arab question. We've talked about this before, the way that the East European countries were trying to create these linguistic states. And that was the goal of the Arab military officers and the leaders of this pan-Arab movement at the beginning of World War One. So McMahon agrees, more or less, but then McMahon writes to the Indian Viceroy Harding and he says, I do not take the idea of a future strong United Independent State too seriously. The conditions of Arabia do not and will not for a very long time to come lend themselves to such a thing. I do not for one moment go to the length of imagining that the present negotiations will go far to shape the future form of Arabia or to either establish our rights or bind our hands in that country. The situation and the elements are much too nebulous for that. What we have to arrive at now is to tempt the Arab people onto the right path, detach them from the enemy, and bring them to our side. This on our part is largely at present a matter of words, and to succeed we must use persuasive terms and abstain from academic haggling over conditions, whether about Baghdad or elsewhere. 
So there's already a plan to go back on this from the beginning. There's always a certain deception and disingenuousness. Keep the promises vague. Just get them to fight for us, and then we'll deal with it later. Yeah. And he, he, I think part of what he's saying is he doesn't think they can do it. So it doesn't matter what we promise them. They're going to kind of fall apart anyway. Um, the other thing that Hussein wants is he doesn't want, he says, if we go against the Ottomans and the Germans, then we don't want you to make a separate peace with them. So the peace deal has to include us, right? <laughs> sure, sure. We can promise you that. <laughs> so Sykes briefs the War Council in December 1915, again, about his impressions of how the Arab world works. He says, the spiritual fire lies in Arabia proper. The intellect and organizing power lie in Syria and Palestine, centered particularly in Beirut. I should like to mention that the intellectual movement, which is behind the Arab movement, is not revolutionary like the Young Turk, because education in Syria, unlike modern education in India and Turkey, has been confined in Syria to the property-owning classes, and consequently you have got a lot of very poor men who have got a little education and greater ambition. I just, I just love this guy. So the British don't, he, but he, he warns them. He says, if the British don't support them, the Arab leaders will be massacred and then the Germans will oblige the Turks to combine terrorism with concessions to the idea of Arab nationality. So that's his big worry. He's He's correct there because this actually happened in Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sykes's later partner, Francois-Georges Picot, uh, was writing about uh, Arab nationalists in Syria and mentioned names. Ugh. He outed them and they were executed by the Turks. <laughs> after after this, uh, King Faisal of Iraq called Pico a war criminal yeah. for, for doing that. Damn right. Um, so the other worry that the British have is this major Baron Max von Oppenheim. So there's a German named Baron Max von Oppenheim, and he lived in Cairo between 1896 and 1914. Cairo is this real wild west, eh? Yeah. So there's a, he's the Kaiser's spy, and he submitted a memo in October 1914 to the Kaiser saying, which was titled, How to Revolutionize the Islamic Territories of Our Enemies. Um, which I guess the British got their hands on the memo. Maybe it was public, and it freaked them out. So they diverted a lot of troops from Europe to make sure that their Islamic territories were not revolutionized. Um, Britain, so again, the urgency of a deal with France. Uh, So France is this deal. uh, So Sykes-Picot, so there's a long negotiation. It's covered at, at length in the book, but... You know, I didn't follow, like, he goes to this meeting, and they go to this meeting, and then this yeah, guy, we'll goes, keep it short. This guy goes there, blah, blah, blah. But it's a secret treaty, and the idea is, um, contrary to the hussein McMahon correspondence, it divides the the Levant between Britain and France. And there's kind of like four zones. There's a zone of French control, which is includes a huge part of Turkey, all of Lebanon. There's... Uh, zone of French influence, which includes most all of Syria itself uh, and northern Iraq. There's a part of British influence, which includes all of Jordan, um, a big part of Egypt, uh, part of Saudi Arabia, and a big most of Iraq. And then there's British influence, which includes like the rest of Iraq and I mean British control which is where most of the oil is. Yeah. <laughs> um, British <laughs> yeah. control is Kuwait and mo- most of southern Iraq. And then there's an international zone in uh, you know, Israel-Palestine, uh, which they're already talking to the Zionists about. So they figure we can... Ha- get, you know, they're starting to think maybe the Zionists can have this, but the holy places should be under some kind of international control. International imperialist control is what they right. mean, obviously. Except for the port of Haifa, which would be under direct British control. Yeah, if you, maybe I'll use the map for this. Uh, I found a. there's lots of maps of this. The original one is 
harder to read than a lot of the modern ones. The original one is blue and red, and they talk about it in the blue zone and red zones. Um, but well, there are, yeah, and there's a larger map of the entire Ottoman Empire, which has even more zones on it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the map that I'm looking at has uh, five, six, seven, eight colors on it. So British control, direct, British influence, zone of influence, French control, direct, and French uh, zone of influence. And the French direct control area is very, very large. It includes a chunk of southern Anatolia uh, and pretty pretty far up into the uh, Anatolian uh, mm -hmm. plateau. There's the international zone. Then there's Russian control. And then later on, they're going to add the Italians. Got to bring them in on the deal. And they're going to give them an Italian zone of direct control and then of, of Italian inf zone of influence. And AJP Taylor says that the impetus for Sykes-Pico, for all of this, came from Russia. And it's because of Gallipoli. Gallipoli is really the starting point. Once the Allies decide we're going to help Russia by helping ourselves to Constantinople, Russia says, wait, 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 wait. We want Constantinople. Yeah, they've always wanted Constantinople. So Foreign Minister Sazanov says, if we're going to, you know, start portioning out uh, the Ottoman Empire, Russia needs to get the Straits. So Constantinople and, and the Dardanelles. Uh, but also we want... Armenia, the provinces of Erzurum, uh, Trebizond in northern Anatolia, Van and Bitlis, and some Kurdish territory to the southeast. So happy Kurds, you've been divided up on maps many times before. Uh, and now Sykes and Pico are going to start drawing lines on the map. I, I looked yeah, up there's absolutely no regard for the so-called Kurdish question in this uh Oh British no, they—they're they, not even considered. Yeah, not—not not even mentioned, uh, except as a geographical area. So, I mean, very interesting that that Phil Philby has a, a direct link to Kim Philby. Did you know Pico was uh, the great uncle of Valérie Giscard d'Estaing? Oh my God, the <laughs> French president in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Wow. These guys are all related. It's it's scary sometimes. So I, I wanted to go back for a second to the uh, McMahon-Hussein correspondent uh, correspondence. You mentioned that the uh, Arabs in, in Syria didn't particularly like the French, or at least were worried about them. Well, so was Hussein. So Hussein wrote in uh, on January 1st of 1916 uh, that you know, so far, what you have said is satisfactory. But Hussein says the uh, Arabs have deep antipathy to the prospect of French administration of any portion of Arab territory. So McMahon is, is reporting that it might be uh, difficult or even impossible to convince France that it's a mistake for them to take over here. If we do not endeavor to warn them of the real state of Arab feeling, uh, they, may, they may think that we are instigating or encouraging opposition to the French, which the Arabs are sort of threatening. So, so in October of 1915, Gray, the foreign minister, met Cambon, the French ambassador, and suggested that France appoint a representative to discuss the future borders of Syria uh, because Britain wanted to back the creation of an independent Arab state. So Gray is now juggling French claims, Sharif Hussein's claims, and he's doing what Gray did he is hoping that the situation will resolve itself without him having to do anything. So he's waffling. And that means he sends a, tel he sends a telegram to Cairo. 
telling the High Commissioner, McMahon, to be as vague as possible in his next letter to the Sharif when discussing, when, sorry, when discussing the northwestern uh, corner of the territory that Hussein claims. That would be Syria. And he leaves McMahon with, quote, discretion in the matter as it is urgent and there is not time to discuss an exact formula. He adds, if something more precise than this is required, you can give it. So yeah, my point we'll just go back on it later anyway. Well, yeah. So my point here is this, it's not just McMahon who's who's lying to Sharif Hussein. This is coming. This is coming straight from London. Right. Just keep it vague because we're not sure what we're going to do later. And we'll, we'll just make promises to all sides and figure it out anon. Uh, the War Committee, February 1916, uh, gave this directive. Monsieur Picot may inform his government that the acceptance of the whole project would entail the abdication of considerable British interests. But provided that cooperation of the Arabs is secured and that the Arabs fulfill the conditions and obtain the towns of Homs, Hama, Damascus, and Aleppo, the British government would not object to the arrangement. But as the blue area, this is the French zone, extends so far eastwards and affects Russian interests, it would be absolutely essential that before anything was concluded, the consent of Russia was obtained. I love I love the language again, right? We're we're going to go along with what you want, France, even though it involves the abdication of considerable British interests. Right? <laughs> we we are giving up yeah. so much here so that you can be happy, right? <laughs> but we have to keep the Arabs happy, yeah. and we have to keep Russia happy. So you know, we may have to limit the French zone because of these other concerns. They're just standing up for for others. For what's right. For who can't stand for themselves. Yeah. So Russia agrees to the, uh, the, the divisions. And then discussions with Italy begin. <laughs> they took place in April to August of 1916. And that led to the creation of an Italian zone. So the Italians are going to get most of the uh, Aegean coast of Turkey and a big slice of the uh, southern part of uh, Anatolia that borders on the the Mediterranean. Uh, And all of this (laughs) is not only uh, for national prestige, it's, it's not just coloring in the map. A lot of it is based on economic zones of interest. So I came across, I didn't realize you were familiar with Anthony Anke. Um, This is a professor at the University of Singapore. uh, And his book, Imperialism, Sovereignty and the Making of International Law from 2005, uh, argues that colonialism was central to the constitution of international law and sovereignty doctrine. So this whole rigmarole is going to be very significant in international law. He he held a symposium in 2016 on the subject of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Wow. Wow. And says Um, that much of the agreement is given over to commercial and trade arrangements, access to ports, and the construction of railways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you're not I know you're not surprised. No, it's it's good. And, and Anthony Angie, I just wanted to mention it's it's from Bikram Gill uh that I heard about it. I can't remember whether Bikram told me about it directly or whether I was just listening to Bikram talk in some forum about it. Uh but he he talked about this this book uh that you you mentioned Imperialism Sovereignty and the Making of International Law and just talks a lot about about this, the the role of colonialism in the construction of these concepts of international law. Um, I think we, you know, I don't know if way back, I don't know whether it was Scramble for Africa or even before, 
But we talked about how Japan got their hands on some international law text very early on, very shortly after the uh, Americans forced them open. And they, uh, they, they used some argument to take some Chinese islands because they said they argued that if they weren't, if China wasn't willing to assert sovereignty over them, then Japan could take them or something. And China didn't really understand what they were. They didn't really get the game at that point. Yeah. The Japanese were the for this first to figure it out. So it was some kind of thing, I think, where Japan said, hey, are these your islands? And China was like, no, no, they're not our islands. They're, they're not. We don't, you know. And Japan was like, oh, good. Okay, we'll take them then. Um, so, uh, okay. So what do we learn from the career of Mark Sykes up to 1916? And and we're going we're gonna to talk about the Zionists. Uh, we, for people who haven't, uh, we talked a lot about the Zionists in up in the scramble for Africa. There's an episode about the so-called Uganda proposal, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come. The Zionists will appear again, at least two or three more times uh, in this series. Um, but the Balfour Declaration of 1917 is a major one, and we'll do a whole episode about that. Yeah, and um, we'll cover Lawrence of Arabia and Allenby and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah the the actual military. Arab revolt that that this was all in some ways a, a prelude prelude to right mm-hmm. they're they're negotiating to try to get a revolt which uh, Lawrence actually does um, but Sykes okay Sykes is ultimately somebody uh, the the amazing thing about these these men uh, that that these great men of the British Empire that I'm we always find ourselves talking about in these series whether it's Kitchener or Wolseley, you guys remember Wolseley, one of my favorites, um, and Sykes now, and soon we'll talk about Balfour, and I mean, but Sykes is, he's a he's a British imperial, he's an English imperialist, he has this Orientalist experience expertise on the Arabs, so the Arabs are his favorite. He racially likes the Arabs, he racially dislikes Turks, he racially dislikes Indians. He eventually becomes a big Zionist, and and converts to Zionism and it becomes convinced that it's a really good idea to give Palestine to Zionists. Um, but the, the weird thing about this, Dave, it's like, it reminds me a lot of what Kissinger, the Kissinger's famous phrase where he says, you know, it's bad to be America's enemy, but it's worse to be America's friend. And it's like, uh, it's bad to be racially disliked by a British imperialist, but it's even worse to be liked. Because when you think about the damage that Sykes's career has done, uh, most of the damage that he did was to the people that he liked the most, the Arabs. Mm. He didn't really do, you know, <laughs> he didn't really do much. And and it's it's all it's truly perverse in the sense that all he he goes on and on about how honorable they are and how smart they are. So naturally, he treats them like idiots and he treats them with dishonor, right? Yeah. So it's 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 almost. So it's some kind of pathology. Like they have to destroy the the people they like. They have to they have to um, exploit the qualities that they say they like. I don't know. It's strange. It's a strange psychology. But um, that's uh, that's Sykes. So next, actually, we're gonna kind of go back to Europe, but we're gonna go um, around because I've got some good sources about. Indian troops and Vietnamese troops. So we've promised to do a, an episode on colonial troops, and I want to do it as we head to the middle of the war. Uh, we're still at the beginning slash middle of the war, and and I think it's a good time to to check in and, and talk about the role of, of these troops, Vietnamese, African, mm-hmm. uh, native troops. I think we should talk a little bit about the Canadian, um, the indigenous troops, the First Nations troops in Can- from Canada, and, and of course... Uh, Vietnamese, so all of these and and the the kinds of changes. There's all kinds of transformations that come out of World War One, but one major one is it comes from the the mobilization of these soldiers. Mm-hmm.